It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of the Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said to him with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And Father, we ask as we open the word of God this morning that the same power of your spirit that was, Lord, miraculously healing people would just help us in our hearts and our minds to be able to just, Lord, be attentive to you, to be able to be receptive to the voice of your spirit and the truth of the word of God. So, Lord, help us. We want to continue now in our worship as we open the word of God. We ask that your Holy Spirit speak to us and be our teacher and that we'd receive and respond what you're saying to each of us. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You haven't noticed yet, be not mistaken, the spiritual life is equally just as much a spiritual battleground. And honestly, the Lord wants us to overcome and to conquer when those battles come. You know, part of being in a war, and the Bible teaches we are indeed in a spiritual war, part of being in a war involves multiple battles, but when the battles come, God wants us to overcome, to be able to conquer in those things rather than be conquered in the midst of those battles. And in this passage this morning, we see both very clearly the power of God in its operation, and we see as well the power of the devil in operation as well. The Lord clearly was blessing his work. He was working in a way whereby he was prospering the word of God, and yet the devil is now seeking to hinder this by any means necessary. And spiritual warfare is indeed real. And whenever the Lord is working, the devil is always going to try and run interference. The Bible is clear in regards to this. 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul there said, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of wickedness that work against us in our lives at times. And the stratagems of the devil to try and stop and hinder God's power from working in your life, from God using you, from the Lord doing the good things he wants to do in and through your life, those stratagems of the devil come in all types of various forms. He uses different types of methods, but we have to remain discerning so that we're not derailed. 
And we have to continue to seek the Lord, to be empowered by his spirit, to overcome and walk in the boldness and power of the spirit, not being overcome by the enemy's temptation and attempts to trip us up and assault us in the midst of those times. The background as we come to chapter 14, the book of Acts, remember, is we're following Paul the apostle on his first missionary journey. We left off with Paul being in the area of what we call the region or province of Galatia. And after many conversions to Christ, there was great spiritual opposition that came against Paul and the missions team there. The religious establishment was filled with envy. It said they began to contradict and to blaspheme and to oppose the work of the Lord. In fact, if you look back in chapter 13, there, both, uh, really around verse 49, it tells us the word of the Lord was spread throughout the region. And look at verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, chief men of the city, raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from that region, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and then they came to Iconium. So they now journey to Iconium, quite a distance. This is about 80 miles away from where they currently are, so keep in mind, and this is happening on foot. Uh, they didn't catch a train. They didn't get an, a quick flight, a little you know, uh, shuttle over there, 80 miles now. On foot as they're expelled, they move to a new area. They're still in the, uh, the Iconium is still in the, the province of Galatia. So they're still in the Galatian region. And we read now as we come to verse one, that it happened in Iconium when they got there, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude <clears throat> of both Jews and Greeks believed. So upon arriving there, as was the practice, they go to the local synagogue, they begin to share the gospel there, and notice verse 1 records for us that a large number of conversions to Christ happen. Now, we've seen a few times now that this was kind of the protocol of Paul the Apostle and his missions team when they would go into a new community. They would often go first to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and his salvation first at the local synagogue. Uh, and this was purposeful for two reasons. One, because the Bible says the gospel of salvation is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And wanting to honor that, I think Paul purposely, for that reason, went to the synagogue first. But also, remember, synagogue worshipers, whether it was the Jews that were there or those who were God-fearing Gentiles assembling with them, the synagogue worship system provided a great foundation to come to faith in Christ if they were willing to believe. Remember, they had the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies. Uh, they had an awareness of who God was as far as Yahweh God. And, and they had a great opportunity, if they were willing to believe, to easily connect the dots to see that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ, the Messiah that God had sent to them. And Paul and Barnabas, we read here in verse 1, being filled with the Holy Spirit, we saw at the end of the last chapter, it says there in verse 1, look at it, it says, they so spoke that a great multitude 
of the people, both Jews and Greeks, believed. Now, when it says a great multitude believed, again, it's a reference of the Holy Spirit to spiritual conversion. The idea is that a great multitude, when they heard the gospel preached to them, began experiencing salvation in Christ. The idea is a large number of people during this next ministry endeavor got saved once again. There was a great multitude that came to salvation in Jesus simply by doing what? proclaiming the gospel message of salvation. And I believe Paul probably did that repeatedly as often as he could. I don't think it's just a reference to one service or one gathering, that he was there preaching Christ in the synagogues. And as the result of doing that, the power of God moved and converted many, many souls. You know, it is truly an amazing thing, hard to wrap your mind around, how the power of God accompanies the proclamation of the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. But yet Paul spoke about that in Romans chapter 1, saying that he was not ashamed, remember, to preach. He said the gospel of Christ, and he said the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. And it is something amazing, the gospel message that we are sinful, that Jesus Christ was sent as the Son of God into this world to live in a sinless way, to be our substitute, to then die sacrificially for our sins that we committed, dying in our place upon the cross, being buried and raising again from the dead the third day, and that he alone can give forgiveness of sins and salvation and the hope of eternal life if he is believed upon and received as Savior and Lord. That simple message of the gospel, the Bible tells us that if it's believed, has the supernatural power of God to convert a soul, to change a person's eternal destiny, to radically transform the condition inside of a person. It has the power of the Holy Spirit when believed upon to regenerate the soul of a human being inside. And see, that's necessary because the Bible teaches that prior to being a Christian, each person is dead spiritually because we are born sinful by nature. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We do not begin life with spiritual life. The Bible teaches that we are dead spiritually. We don't have the capacity inside of us to have relationship with God. There must come a time where upon receiving Jesus and the message and gospel of salvation, that when we embrace Christ, we believe upon what the Lord Jesus did for us and receive it on our behalf. The Bible says that that's when we are regenerated or made alive spiritually. It's Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who gives us spiritual life, makes us come alive spiritually, and then we have a consciousness and a relationship with God. It's then we receive eternal life and the ability to have a relationship with God through the spirit. And how wonderful when the power of God moves here, this great multitude we see now coming to Christ in the city of Iconium, yet with powerful conversions is going to come what? Satanic conflict, right? Those two are going to go together. And that's why we read in verse two what we do. It says, but in light of that, the unbelieving Jews, those who didn't want to believe upon Christ, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Those who spurned the gospel rejected the opportunity to be saved by Jesus. They're not content to do that on their own. What are they doing? They're now trying to turn other people away as well. 
And notice how it happens there in verse two. The devil prompts the sinful nature of these unsaved people to begin to speak in ways to poison, it says, the minds, to say destructive things, to defile how people would view other believers and these ministers of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas. And here we see one of the various ways the devil exercises his power as well. One of the ways the devil exercises his power is to stir up division in relationships by causing people to say toxic things about the Lord's people or about other people in general to defile how they would then think about them. Do you see what verse two says there? It's a very pertinent verse. It says, they poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now question, how do you poison someone's mind against someone else? Well, the answer is simple. How does a snake poison its victim? It bites its victim and it injects its victim, right, with toxic venom that has a detrimental or a destructive effect upon them once that venom is injected in them. Well, guess what? The Bible, interesting enough, pictures the devil like a serpent, like a snake. It's one of the metaphors of the devil. And so in light of that, what does the devil do? Well, he slithers about. He works very, very subtly. Very subtly. Oh, I just want to tell you about the story. Or, or I just, I, I want to explain to you what happened so that you can pray for them. And, and very subtly, the devil works in ways whereby, whether it's through media and what they say or the mouths of people who just talk in our conversations, the devil works very powerfully to seduce and to poison and to deceive the minds of people by the influence of misguiding people's mindset and distorting their thinking. Look, the Bible tells us that the devil is called the serpent of old, and it also says that he's also called the accuser of the brethren. And so be not deceived. Satan as a serpent will, and he does, use the power of the tongue to get people to say things about other people to therefore distort their mindset. He will speak things about other people by using their tongue and he will get people to say things about others that are false, that are just flat out lies. He'll get people at times to speak about people in ways that are unfair and are inaccurate, that are critical and slanderous with the intention of poising the minds of those who are hearing and listening to those things so that they are then against that person and their mind is then poisoned toward a person or poisoned towards persons or a particular group. And here we see that happening. I tell you, Satan is often the unseen power that is behind a lot of the slander and a lot of the accusations that are made against good and innocent and godly people. It is the power of the devil working through the human tongue to destroy it and to distort how we think and to stir up division. That's why it says there in verse two, he poisoned their minds against the brethren. And let me ask by way of application this morning, is it possible that you've experienced that? Is it possible this morning, maybe you've allowed yourself to be the victim of someone who's kind of stirred up trouble by poisoning your mind against someone else 
because you've listened to things that someone else has said and in so doing, your mind has been filled with toxic venom towards another person now. And now therefore, you find yourself kind of turned against someone because of toxic things that were just spoken about them. Whether it was in a conversation or some story you heard. And look, let me say, if that's you this morning and you become the victim of that, your mind's been poisoned. Do you know what the antidote is? The antidote is this. Get a hold of the truth. Get a hold of the truth. That, that, that's the antidote when your mind's been poisoned. Get a hold of the truth. Don't just let the venom just keep running in your mind and have a wrong perspective. It's a very unhealthy and a destructive thing. And often it's a work of the enemy. And let me say on the other side of that, if you are guilty of speaking about someone in toxic ways, whereby having done such, you've poisoned the mind toward uh, them about someone else because you've spoken in toxic ways and now you've poisoned someone's mind towards someone else, let me say, you, you need to acknowledge you, unfortunately, let the devil use you as an instrument there. And, and you need to repent of that. And you need to own that. And maybe you need to even do a little damage control to reconcile that. Never a good thing. So here they poison the minds against the believers, against Paul and Barnabas, and probably against the other Christians around them as well. What a hurtful and unfortunate thing. But look at verse 3. Therefore... It says they stay there a long time. Interesting. It doesn't say they hit their Twitter account and fired back, right? Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So rather than be intimidated by the power of evil, they're emboldened by the power of God here. And they carry on in their ministry. We see now verse 3 again, the power of God displayed. The power of God's being displayed in their continual faithfulness to speak God's word. Do you see what verse 3 says? It says they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. Now, what they were experiencing in what was being said and the minds of people being poisoned against them. Look, they're human beings. I'm sure it was hurtful. Sure, it was discouraging. I'm sure it was frustrating. But yet the Lord, by his spirit, gave them, you might say, staying power. The Lord gave them staying power not to quit, not to give up or to give in. I love what it says in verse three. They stayed there. And you know the reason why they stayed there? Because the Lord gave them staying power. The Lord gave them power to stay at it, to keep at it. I'm sure in their humanity, it was a battle, as I said, with discouragement and frustration. Probably their thoughts and feelings made it very tempting, I'm sure, at times, to want to just pack up and pull out. I'm sure that was a strong temptation, but yet the Lord empowered them with the ability to remain faithful in difficult circumstances. It says they stayed there for a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, bearing witness to the word of his grace. They kept on speaking God's word. They kept on sharing the truth with the people because they knew that it mattered, that the people needed to hear the truth of God and they had a concern for the spiritual welfare of these new believers, so they sought God for power to stay at it and to keep going. And let me say this morning, God has not changed, and perhaps maybe you're dealing with a difficult circumstance. 
maybe something hurtful, something hard, maybe something very discouraging. And there's a lot of temptation to maybe want to pack up and pull out or give up altogether. Can I encourage you to know God can give you staying power? God can empower you to stay at it, to stay faithful, to keep moving in the spirit and give you the power of the Lord to not just give up or give in or run off. There is staying power from God's spirit to be faithful, to remain Maybe to stay for an extended time and not give up or give in prematurely. I love it. it says they stayed there a long time. And notice the importance of what they were doing. It says in verse 3 that they were actually there, not only speaking in the Lord, but they were bearing witness to the word of his grace. Look, that's why their faithfulness mattered. They were telling people about the, the saving grace of God. They were telling people about how you could experience the grace of God through salvation in Jesus Christ and that they could be saved by grace and through faith alone. How vitally important it is for people to hear about the grace of God, to hear what God's grace offers, what God's grace means, that God wants to be gracious. That's why God wants to supply power for people who are doing that. Look, if you're speaking the word of his grace and you're telling people about the grace of the Lord, I tell you, you're a candidate for the strength and the power of the Lord to sustain you in that process because that matters to God. That's important. And the Lord wants you to keep at that. He wants to help you and he can strengthen you to keep doing it faithfully. Well, the power of God also at the end of the verse was revealed even in looking at it, it says actual miracles were happening to validate the word of God. It says that the Lord was granting signs and wonders to be done by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. That is, the Lord was actually performing wonders and miracles to confirm his word, to bear witness to his authority and his reality in order to authenticate the power of God among the people. And notice the miraculous signs followed the word of God. It was the miraculous signs that were confirming and authenticating what the word of God was saying. This is not a meeting described here in verse three where people get together and say, hey, bring your friends. There's going to be signs and wonders and miracles. That's not what this is. They assembled. They proclaimed the word of God. They told people how to be saved. They shared the word of God. And then at times God would show his miraculous power in a miracle or some wonder to authenticate his word to show that he was a real and living God and that he had power and was worthy to be trusted. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, go and preach the gospel. And Jesus said, and signs will follow. He didn't say follow signs. We shouldn't be following signs. Signs will follow, the Bible says. We preach the gospel, we share the word of God. And when God wants to flex his muscle, God will flex his muscle. When God says, you know what? I want to give an amen to that. I'm going to do something miraculous to show people I am worthy to be trusted or to, to get these people to rely on me. God will do that as he sees fit. And how important of a message it was. No wonder God was showing his power, strengthening the disciples in hardship, doing signs and wonders. And verse four says, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. So again, whenever the gospel is presented, it always does bring to some degree a, a separation, a separation in relationships due to the different responses. Either a person is going to believe and follow the way of the Lord, 
or they're going to reject the gospel message and they're going to walk in their own way. They're going to walk in the way of the world in their own way. And because personal choices allow people to decide whether or not they're going to live for Jesus and walk in his way or live for themselves and walk in their own way and reject Jesus, that will always cause a natural level of separation between people because people, depending upon what they choose about Jesus, will really be walking in two different directions spiritually. You know, Jesus even spoke about this in the Gospels, that because of him and what he presents and offers to people, that there would be separation because sometimes people will have to choose between allegiance to the Lord or to other human relationships. And sometimes it causes a level of division and separation in that way. Well, look what happens. Verse 5, it says, Now a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and to stone them. And when they became aware of it, they fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of the Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So notice, after the devil's attempt with verbal abuse fails, after the devil's attempt to poison people's mind fails, he increases the intensity a few notches. Would you agree? I mean, look what the verses are describing there in verse 5. The devil now inspires a group of Jews, Gentiles, and religious rulers. It says to make a violent attempt, verse 5 says, to abuse and to stone them. So the danger level increases now to physical harm, to violence against them, physical violence, even potential death. That's pretty serious resistance there. Again, Jesus said that the devil is a thief who comes to rob, kill, and destroy. And sometimes that can actually happen literally. And here we see an occasion where they literally were making a violent attempt to abuse and to stone them to murder the disciples. Yet God mercifully intervenes, we see there in verse 6, by letting Paul and Barnabas become aware of it. And it says when they become aware that this death threat is upon them, it says they then flee off to Lystra and to Derb in the surrounding region. Now look, them there fleeing is called wisdom. They're wisely fleeing to a safer region in good stewardship. That is not a lack of courage. That is not a lack of faith. There were times when the people tried to harm Jesus. He was God in the flesh. And sometimes Jesus would depart and he would move on. So this is not a lack of faith or a lack of courage. This is called the use of wisdom and good stewardship in order to do what? to remain consistently effective for the Lord. If they got killed, their ministry was over. So they want to continue reaching more people. This reminds us there is a time to stay and to be faithful, and there is also a time that you should move on. If somebody's trying to kill you, that might be a good suggestion that the Lord's saying move on. Might be. And so here, again, both are of the Lord. We have to listen to his leading and use wisdom. So they flee now to Lystra and Derb. It's about 18 miles from where they are. But they're still in this province of Galatia where they're at now. And verse 7 says they were able to continue doing what the Lord sent them to do. They were there preaching the gospel. Again, not promoting themselves or proclaiming other things. They kept sharing the gospel telling people about Jesus and how to be saved. What's interesting, Lystra, we read there in verse 6, that's actually the hometown of Timothy. 
who becomes Paul's protege in ministry and traveling companion who Paul trains to ultimately take over his ministry for him. So this is likely, because this is Timothy's hometown, probably how the gospel reached Timothy's family, his grandmother and mother, who then ultimately led Timothy to Christ as well. Now, as they're there preaching the gospel in this city of Lystra, We get another record here going on in verse 8 of the powerful work of God that happens in this city. Look at verse 8. It says, And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observing him intently, seeing he had faith to be healed, said to him with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped up and walked. So a miracle, again, performed by the Lord radically changes this man's life here. Notice a few things with me. Verse 8 describes his condition. It tells us he's crippled from birth. He possessed no strength in his feet. The idea is there's just complete paralysis. And it says that he's been in this condition from birth. That is, he never walked before. Walking was only something he saw other people do. This man had never walked in his entire life and there was nothing he could do to solve his problem. He had an issue in his body. He had a situation of paralysis and there was nothing he could do to change his condition. Nothing he could do in and of himself. But yet verse 9 says, look, that this man heard Paul speaking. That is, he's listening to Paul share about the Lord about his powerful, not only death, but his greater power in his resurrection back from the dead. And that this Lord is gracious and he has the power to help people who trust in him. And as he's hearing the word of God spoken, his heart is stirred in faith. It says, Paul observing him intently, seeing he had faith to be healed. So as he's hearing the word of God and he's hearing about the Lord, His heart in that moment is stirred in faith towards the Lord. The Bible tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And in that moment, as he's hearing the word of God, faith is stirred in his heart and this man becomes dialed in spiritually. And he's looking and listening and he's believing what he's hearing about the Lord And faith and confidence is rising up in his heart towards the Lord. And it's at that moment, verse 9 says, Paul, seeing he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, he commands him. And miraculously, it says, this man leaped up and walked. Now, what's being described here is a few of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit that we have recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see the power of God in operation by some of these spiritual gifts. It says that Paul can tell by observation this man has faith to be healed by God. Now there are some of the spiritual gifts at work because first of all, Paul knows either by perhaps a word of knowledge that this man has faith to be healed. As Paul's speaking, he's looking at this man and somehow Paul's able to discern that he has faith to be healed. So that could be one of two things. Either it could be, as I said, the gift of the word of knowledge, which is the supernatural ability from the spirit to impart knowledge to a believer that they could not know otherwise. But God, who knows all things, 
can take a measure of his knowledge about a situation or a person and he can miraculously, spiritually impart a word of his knowledge into the mind of another person. So maybe that's what happens. God's seeing what's happening in this man's heart and he tells Paul, Paul, he has faith for me to heal him. Or it could be just the gift of discerning of spirits that Paul perceives that this man has faith by just divine insight and discernment in some ways. He discerns what's going on in the spirit. We also see secondarily the gift of faith in operation together with the gift of healing. That's very evident. The fact that the Holy Spirit chooses to grant this man a gift of divine miraculous healing is pretty obvious when a man who's paralyzed from birth, it says, stands up leaps and starts walking around it's pretty obvious that's a gift of healing that god just distributed there a miracle happened where this man's legs and again imagine dr luke who writes the uh, the book of acts he's a physician imagine for him caring for people medically to realize that this paralyzed man instantaneously receives power and healing in his body into his legs as the power of God flows through his body and instantly he's healed. Instantly what was damaged is restored. The tissue is just perfected and everything that was wrong within him in an instant the power of God flowed into his body healing. No treatment, No rehabilitation, healing, miraculous healing, a gift from the Lord in a powerful way. And that gift of healing, notice, is tied together with the exercise also of what we know from 1 Corinthians 12 called the gift of faith. And oftentimes these two gifts work in conjunction, the gift of healing or the gift of a miracle and the gift of faith happening, I believe, both in the heart of the crippled man and Paul. And again, what is the biblical gift of faith from 1 Corinthians 12 that we see in operation here? The gift of faith is not a person who's a Christian that just has a lot of faith all the time. That's not what the gift of faith is. Some people may be more inclined to trust the Lord. That's great. But the spiritual gift of faith 1 Corinthians 12 describes is when God's spirit gives a believer a supernatural and unusual measure of faith in a given situation to believe God for doing something incredible. That's what the gift of faith is. Where a situation arises and the Holy Spirit imparts into the heart of a believer an unusual measure of faith to trust God to do something incredible and to believe that God is able and is going to work in some awesome way by his power. It's a supercharged divine confidence to trust God even for a miracle. And that's what we see happening here. With the lame man, this was happening. His heart was being stirred with a gift of faith and he's hearing, hearing, hearing about the Lord and all of a sudden in his heart, he is stirred with faith and he says, I believe this Lord can heal me. I believe if he can rise from the dead, he has the power to fix my dead body. I believe he can do it. And Paul certainly, to me, had to have the gift of faith at work in his life because he wants to keep a credible ministry, and you do. You don't say to crippled people, hey, stand up and walk right now. Unless you have a strong confidence from the Lord (laughs) that that's going to happen. But again, the gift of faith stirs in Paul's heart. He sees the faith, and he believes that God wants to heal in this moment. Look, I don't always understand God's healing work. 
I realize not everybody on this earth gets healed physically and there are things that happen that cause confusion and hurt and those who kind of portray, I think, God in a distorted way sometimes like he's a genie in the bottle and we can just force God to do whatever and if you're not healed then it doesn't mean you don't have faith and, and, and I understand all of that and it's, it's a shame that sometimes that discourages us but folks, listen, let us never just because of maybe what we see or what we don't understand regress so far back that we're never open to asking the power of God to work if it be in accordance with his will. Because the Bible tells us there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And if it's in accordance with God's plan and purposes and for his glory, God can do anything at any given time. This man believed God could do it and God honored his faith. God saw the faith in his heart and God chose in alignment with his purposes to reward his faith and do miraculously heal his body and to change his entire life in an instant. Now, imagine in a city where everybody knew a person who had been paralyzed from birth and a powerful miracle like that happens. That's going to cause quite a stir. Verse 11 says, Now when the people saw... What Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Again, Hermes was the messenger of the gods in their minds. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. So being a very superstitious and religious community, the people thought Paul and Barnabas, because of this miracle that just happened, were actually the gods, Zeus and Hermes, who had come to their realm to pay them a visit, and now they want to actually give them worship as the result of this miracle that just happened. Now, by way of legend, and I stress the word legend, by way of legend, it is stated that among this community, what these people believed there was that there was a time in the past when both Zeus and Hermes, the gods, had visited the people in that area, and yet everyone ignored them in the society and kind of brushed them off and didn't give them hospitality. And yet one elderly couple who recognized who they were, welcomed them as deities, treated them well, and so therefore Zeus and Hermes punished and destroyed the whole society and gave these two elderly people who welcomed them the opportunity for their home to be their temple and they would be the priest and priestess. And of course, this became then how we have the establishment there, verse 13, of the fact that they have a priest of Zeus whose temple was there in their city. Now, with that background, it makes a little bit of sense. Again, legend, it didn't happen, it's legend, but perhaps why they are responding in this way. Because they're thinking, last time when they visited, we messed up. They're here. Go get the garlands. Go get the sacrifices. And the priest of Zeus is saying, we don't want another catastrophe. We need to honor the gods. That's why they're shouting there in verse 11. The gods have come down in the likeness of men. It's happened. And that's why the priest, verse 13, runs and they're intending to literally sacrifice to them as gods. Well, verse 14 says, when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude crying out saying, men, why are you doing these things? 
we are men also with the same nature as you. So when they become aware, the people are not only trying to exalt them as a god, but offer sacrifices of worship to them, they strongly respond by doing everything they can to deflect such glory from themselves. You can tell here, they want to immediately squash this spiritual deception and error in their thinking. It says in verse 14, they come in tearing their clothes. Now, tearing the clothes was an expression of grief outwardly that you didn't agree or that you were overwhelmed with sadness over something that was happening. It also, I believe, as they tore their clothes, was an, ex- was an expression to kind of tear their clothes and say, look, see our flesh, we're just human beings. We're not gods. And probably as they rent their garment, they were trying to show they were just fleshly and not gods. And they ran in crying out in verse 15, saying to them, why are you doing these things? We're people with a nature like you. We are imperfect human beings, just like the rest of you. Please stop. Don't exalt us like we're superior to you or something special. We don't deserve to be honored or exalted in a superior way. Now, let me say in connection to what's happening there, I think there's another effort of the devil taking place there. There's another effort of the power of the devil to ensnare and ruin these two men who are being used powerfully by God in their ministry there. To ensnare them in such a way by when the Lord used them, and he did in a powerful way, people now want to wrongly exalt them. They're excited about the power of God and what happened, but unfortunately, they're wrongly wanting to give glory to the vessels through the power of God working through to exalt these men as special or superior, to give them undue honor as if they are way more spiritual. In fact, that they're actually gods, that they're idols and worthy to be worshipped. And one of the powerful tactics of the devil, I tell you this, is to exalt people in such a way at times where people become perceived as more important than they really are. Or they be, they're perceived or looked upon as more special or superior than everyone else around them. And they get lifted up in this way whereby people actually idolize another human being. And this is a common effort of the devil, a temptation. When the Lord is using one of his servants, sometimes people get excited, great things are happening, and in confusion, they overly exalt the servant. They overly get enamored with the person that God graciously worked through, and the devil seeks to manipulate that human error and deception in the minds of people whereby people get their eyes onto a man. And in the same way, the devil works whereby people get their eyes on a man and the devil gets that man to really enjoy people's eyes being on him and liking all the attention and the specialness that they bring to everyone. And the devil very powerfully understands the reality of human pride. And so he seeks to manipulate human pride in this way. And it happens even when God is working and among God's people that people just love to be honored and the devil knows that. And so he works in this tricky way and it's crucial, crucial, crucial that a servant of the Lord being used in any way retain humility before the God who is using them by his power. And I tell you, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to refuse exaltation in our lives whenever anybody wants to treat us as if somehow we're more special it takes the power of the holy spirit to to deny that and to clarify look i'm just like everyone else just like everyone else 
and to let that glory be given directly to the Lord. Well, Paul challenges what they're doing wrong to stop them. And notice then he shifts the focus. He wants to point them to God. He says, going on in verse 15, we've come to preach to you that you should turn, he says, from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, giving him rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, Luke says, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So look, it took a lot of effort, and we'll see more of this next week in connection to verse 18, to actually refrain and stop the people, restraining them, from sacrificing to them as if they were deities. But this was crucial to stop the wrong worship because Paul knew they needed to know the true God and worship the true God. And that's why we read here in verses 15 to 17, Paul proclaimed to them at this moment the powerful God they needed to know and they needed to live in submission to. First of all, he tells them there that they needed to, in verse 15, turn away from the useless things, he says, that you've been worshiping. Paul says you need to turn away. As human beings, we're designed to worship. God created us that way. The unfortunate thing is by error and our weakness in our flesh and sinful nature, we're prone oftentimes in blindness and deception to to worship wrong things. And we worship useless things. And we give useless things our primary allegiance. And the worship of any god or idol or person or thing is useless. It's vain. It's empty. The worship of any system of religion or false god If you give your dedication to that, you will find in time the pursuit of that is utterly useless. I understand. I've been so religious all my life. I've I've kind of I've done this religious system and I still feel so empty, right? Because that system's useless. It's only worshiping God that's useful. Everything else is useless. It doesn't profit the human soul. And many of us have spent lots of our time in life pursuing useless things and finding it's empty afterwards and it doesn't profit or benefit us and we need to come to a place where we turn away from what's useless so that we can, Paul says, secondly, verse 15, we can turn to the living God. That's repentance, turning away from what's wrong and useless and turning to the living God, the God who's alive and real, who has power to help and who wants to give us his life-giving power, spiritual life and eternal life. He wants to supply power because he's a living God who can give life through his great power. And Paul speaks in these verses here of the power of God in a few different ways. He speaks of God's power being displayed in creation there in verse 15. He says God's power was manifest and that he made the heaven and the earth and all things that are in them. That is, God powerfully created everything that exists in heaven and earth, angels and human beings, everything that exists. He says, it's God as the living God who had the power to create all those things. But what Paul wants them to understand is if he's the one who made all things and he made you, then you're going to be accountable to him someday because he's your creator. He's your maker. And the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. 
Secondly, Paul speaks of God's power in his patience and mercy. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, God's power is seen in that in bygone generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. That speaks of how a holy God has allowed mankind to rebel and sin against him for generation after generation after generation that God has allowed human beings to walk in their own ways, rejecting the ways of God, and God has patiently endured. God has mercifully restrained his power from judging them as he righteously could. Let me just say, what power it must take for God to be so patient and so merciful with humanity. What power that is. We often don't think of God's power that way. The power of God to be merciful and to restrain. But the reality is one day he's going to stop restraining himself and he's going to be a just judge. And that's why Paul thirdly speaks of God's power displayed in his gracious love and kindness in revealing himself in verse 17. He says, nevertheless, this God did not leave himself without a witness and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Notice God has been so kind and he's kept continually revealing himself in any way that he could through creation. As Psalm 19 speaks about the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows his handiwork. Paul says in Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in creation and the way God works in creation. God has not left himself without witness in his existence. Paul says, in fact, in his kindness and love, though we've been rejecting him and living in our own ways, God kept being nice to us. Paul says there, he's given us rain from heaven. God doesn't have to do that. God could stop rain at any moment and everybody would starve. He says, God has blessed us with fruitful seasons in our life and brought gladness into our hearts at times. In other words, he's saying, God's been doing nice things our whole life. Even when we didn't know God and we weren't living for God and we weren't following God and we were rejecting God, he's continually being nice and caring and showing his love in many different ways, blessing our lives. You know, it's interesting that Paul, realizing they had a very limited knowledge of spiritual truth, started with the very basics to point them to God. He says to these people, listen, you have a desire to worship. The problem is you're worshiping the wrong thing. It's useless. And that's why you're empty. And he says, but the wonderful thing is this. There's a God who created you and loves you and has been showing mercy to you even your whole life that you've been ignoring him. And this God, he says, he's trying to reveal himself to you. Yet one day you're going to stand before this creator God and you're going to have to answer him. So it's time, Paul says, to turn away from how you've been living and to turn to God, to turn to God's way. And what is God's way? Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How simple, how freely available God makes himself to humanity. Shall we?